0: N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash W-T-F <laughs> All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucksters? What the fucking ears? What the fucking knots? How's it going? I'm Mark Marin. This is my show. This is WTF, the podcast. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate your listenership. What? Yeah, I do. But why? Am I might sometimes I just talk and I don't even it doesn't. I don't realize what I'm saying until after it comes out. It sounded very professional. It was pleasant. There was true gratitude there. Anyway, thanks for listening. It's an amazing show today. I had an, uh, an incredible conversation with Sir Patrick Stewart. This is the second uh, Sir I've had on the show, and uh, and and equally as amazing a conversation as I had with Sir Ian McKellen uh, not long ago. Uh, I was thrilled to have him. And I'm not even that huge. Well, let's be honest. I'm not a Star Trek guy at all, but I am a Patrick Stewart guy. Uh, He's a very impressive character, and it it was a very surprising and candid and and emotional conversation. I was was, uh, happy to have him here, and I think you'll enjoy that talk. Listen to me setting up the talk like a professional. I'm going to be in Australia, October 15th at Sydney, Australia, at the State Theater, October 16th at the Palais Theater in Melbourne, October 17th at Brisbane City Hall in Brisbane. Uh, Please um, go to my website, wtfpod.com slash calendar for the links to the tickets. If you're in Australia, you're going to be in Australia. I'm excited about those shows, and I will be there. Some other bits of business here on the show today. I can tell you about my personal struggles with my roof and my tools. I can do that. Uh, but I think I need to address a situation that happened in the press and happened to, on my phone. I got a call a few days ago, a text from uh, from my friend uh, Steve Ranazizi, He's a comedian. And um, I thought he maybe uh, I didn't know what it was about. I thought he might want to come on uh, and talk about his special. Turns out it was much more dire. I got on the phone with him. And uh, this was before any news broke. And, and I said, what's up? And he goes, well, look, this is uh, it's, it's about me. And uh, and uh, I need to apologize to you um, for lying to you. And I was like, what? And he said, uh, you know, I was on your podcast and I talked about uh, being in the World Trade Center on 9-11 and, and I wasn't and uh i just i need to i need to apologize for lying to you i'm sorry and it's not true and i'm just not that guy that does that and i'm just i'm coming clean and and, i'm I'm just i want to apologize to you and i said okay uh i appreciate that and you know good for you for owning it but uh but you know it hit the news it was in the new york times i guess and it it obviously has gotten uh traction and and uh you know the podcast that I had him on that happened uh that was almost 6 years ago and you know that's out there so I know some people played that and you know it's been you know it's a it's a big deal and um I don't know that he necessarily owed me an apology I think it's a, a you know the, the the right thing to do to apologize for lying but but I need you guys to know that you know this is not 60 minutes if someone comes on the show and tells a story about their life, uh, I'll, I I will take what they're saying at face value. If people come on here and make stuff up, I mean that's on them. This is obviously going to be a, a life changer for Steve, and he's got to live with this. That's where that's at. I appreciate the apology. It was a it was a bad thing to do, but uh, you know that's on Steve now, and 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 that's you know his cross to bear and his conscience, and and he's got to live with the uh, repercussions of what he did. Uh, and and uh, and now you know owning up to it so so that's that's where I stand on that. So shifting gears the other day it rained in LA I'd like to thank whoever was responsible for that or maybe just the universe or weather patterns or what but fuck man did we need the rain or what my uh, I I think that the structure of my house was literally drying out. Everything is drying up and the rain comes and I was so thrilled, of course, to see my new driveway in action, to see those drains working, to not see sandbags in front of my fucking garage, to see my driveway dry and water free because the drainage system works. But I was surprised to wake up the day of the rains to rain in my kitchen. Water was raining into my kitchen. So I was alone in the house. It was early in the morning. Water was pouring into my kitchen. It was raining. The drains were working, but there was a problem, obviously, and that had only happened one time before when the water on my roof got so high because of a clogged, the only gutter I had, there's only one outlet for water up there, and that got clogged, and the water level rose above the seam of the roof, but it meant that I had to get up on my roof. I had to get on a ladder, and I can't tell you how much it took, how much personal strength it took not for me just to angrily climb up that ladder alone with no help no one spotting me no one there to see if i fell and cracked my head uh I, it took a lot and i think it's a sign of growth that i wasn't so stubborn that i may not be here today that i wasn't so stubborn that i might uh, you know be you know in a hospital babbling or in a coma so i would like a little credit And a pat on the back for not being a fucking old, proud idiot and just making it up that ladder in the pouring rain out of anger to deal with that myself and possibly hurting myself. What I did was I sat there and I thought, well, who could come over right now? Who could come over? (laughs) Who could come over and help me right now immediately because I need help? I called the contractor who did my driveway. I texted him. Dude, trouble. Water coming in the house. Didn't hear back from him. Thought maybe Ryan Singer. There's no way that fucker's up at eight o'clock in the morning. Maybe my neighbor. When I go knock on my neighbor's door. How about my girl? How about the woman in my life? I didn't want to bother her. She's got her own shit going on. Making her own house, you know, right. And doing her own shit. But I told her what was happening. And I was just going to wait it out. I had to get the ladder out. She's like, I'm coming over. So there we were. Out in the rain. In my rain gear. Her and her hat climbing up the fucking ladder so i got up to the roof and there was about a foot of fucking water sitting up there like a little goddamn lake and then i released it i pulled that grate out and just 40 gallons of water just ran through my new draining system it was exciting i was happy there was a solution so i guess that what i'm telling you is that i think we should all be happy that uh it's not raining in my kitchen and that uh i didn't uh maim myself or lobotomize myself or die by being stupid on a ladder. See that? Maybe it's a lesson story. Maybe. I don't know. Those of you who have been listening for a few years, I think might remember when I fell 15 feet off that ladder onto my back and the woman I was living with came out yelling and screaming and crying at what an idiot I was. She was just inside. Why didn't I tell her? Oh, because I'm a proud, stubborn old fuck. So, Learn my lesson. Okay, enough said. Oh, I saw Straight out of Compton. I thought it was spectacular. I don't do a lot of movie reviews here, but man, here's the deal. I missed that whole thing. I missed it because I remember when it was happening, but I just was not. It was not my music. It was not my world. I don't know how I missed it, but I missed it. But the amazing thing about going to see a biopic where you know very little about who's the bio is of. I mean, I'm obviously I'm familiar with Dr. Dre. I'm familiar with ice cube. I, I, I didn't know much about easy. I didn't know anything about any of them. So I didn't really know enough about them to sort of have that feeling where you're like, Oh, this does not like the real guy. Like these, it was an amazingly acted movie. Uh, Historically, I imagine it's fairly accurate. Uh, It was produced by, by cube. And I think easy E and uh, his widow is involved and, and uh and uh Dre was involved so I just thought it to be an amazingly acted um, you know well crafted movie it was exciting it was compelling I learned things I wanted to go listen to all the music now like that's the beautiful thing about the internet and about the fact and I'll I'll support this again again there is no late to the party you can just go get that stuff but man the whole life I I just thought uh, I just thought it was great and I I need to I, I really want to I, I want to interview Ice Cube. I mean, out of the whole crew, that guy seemed, the guy who, perf- who played him was amazing. And uh, the, the sort of depth that it seemed like that the, 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 the righteous spirit of the whole undertaking was sort of on his shoulders. And that whole world of the music business is, is really new to me. Uh, it, it shouldn't be. Uh, it, there's an ignorance to my, on my part, but um, I thought it was fucking exciting and I thought it was a great movie. That I guess that's all I'm saying. I'm ignorant about rap music and I, I loved that movie and I learned something and um it was I fucking the the spirit of it was just amazing. So now it's my pleasure to uh to to bring to you my conversation with Sir Patrick Stewart. Uh his show Blunt Talk, his new show airs on Saturday nights. At 9 p.m. on Stars, but you know him from uh, the other things. (laughs) Uh, He's an amazing guy. So uh, here we go. you are the uh, the second night i've had indeed mm-hmm Ian McKellen was here. That's right. So he was
1: talking about Mister Holmes. Yes. Yeah. In and she's i think—he's brilliant in that film. He was
0: great. I, I don't—I don't know how much we got in, into that ultimately, but we did talk about uh, Shakespeare. Yes. Yes. Because uh, he knows I, something about that. He's—he's he's pretty on top of the Shakespeare business. Yes, he is. And I—I uh, I am one of those people that never really locked into Shakespeare. It Why was, was that? Because I don't, I don't. It just, I didn't understand it. It seemed to take a long time, <laughs> you know. And when I saw it, it was like I don't I don't really get it. Really, and, but I'm not diminishing him. I'm, I'm certainly not going to say that Shakespeare was some, you know, not a uh, the the greatest writer ever. I just, I wish I could relate to it more. And then he, you know, we talked about it a bit. And then at the end, he performed Shakespeare to my face directly, yes. and he delivered the message. <clears throat> I, ah. He, uh, yeah, I don't know if that was intention, uh, but he did something from Thomas More, I guess, sort of, which is a little off the beaten path. Oh or, yeah, that's an uh, an alleged um, authorship. But he said that was the only one that is in Shakespeare's handwriting, supposedly, in the British Museum. That there was this piece, yes. and it was a monologue about immigrants. Yes. And he did it looking right at me out of nowhere. And I was like, all right, I get it now. I understand. And did he do that off book? Was he? Yes, he was prepared completely. Oh, he did... What <laughs> <It's>... a show off. <laughs> <laughs> but you must have Shakespeare monologues in your mind at, yeah. at, on hand yeah. at will. Yeah. They
1: have been cluttering up my brain for decades. I mean, I can remember speeches that I learned when I was a teenager. Really? Oh, sure. They're all, it's all there. And my wife this morning quoted, um, she quoted uh, something from Hamlet, and and you know she's a singer, so yeah. she's not supposed to know right. Shakespeare. She got a couple of words wrong, but right. otherwise it yeah. was a, it was a very good quote. Uh, and I could I could, you could add the words that were missing, but I, yeah, I've I have speeches, you know, I, I hours of speeches. In my head, that just don't go away. There's something about Shakespeare. There's something about the nature of the of the blank verse, uh-huh. even his prose, uh-huh. which is a little trickier. Right, but it sticks. Right, and, and it's almost like a song. Uh, y- yes, be- well, because there is a rhythm. Right, and there there is. A tune. There is music to some right. Shakespeare.
0: And do you find yourself? Uh, are you one of those people that can quote it appropriately in conversation, like out of nowhere, uh, the, and a situation is happening, and and you draw and do you do you summon Shakespeare into uh, your? Well, uh,
1: I have done. <laughs> Uh, it's it's a little bit um, pretentious, I think, to do that. But I do it in blunt talk in episode one. Uh, I saw it. I yeah, watched it last I'm,
0: night. Quoting Hamlet from the roof of my car, and that, that you didn't have to that didn't have to write that in for you.
1: Uh, they did write it in, but uh, it was a line that I've spoken several hundred times, so uh-huh. I didn't have any difficulty remembering. You've
0: it. done Hamlet several hundred times, uh, performances.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, but, but that's but, right. That's but not right. playing the prince, playing the king. I. I never acted Hamlet. It's a disappointment in my life, partly because I feel really ready to do it now. Right. I feel that probably this right. will be the best time in my life. However, I'm probably about 50 <laughs> years too old to play Hamlet.
0: But there's, you can interpret Shakespeare how you'd like. Any it? <laughs> way you
1: like. Yes, indeed. I mean, there's been a very notable production in England yeah. this past year when uh, Hamlet was played by a beautiful young actress. How was that received? Uh, It it was received marvelously. A lot of enthusiasm for for her performance. So, you know, uh, I, I, I wonder sometimes about the radio. Maybe I could come and do Hamlet here. We could do Hamlet. Do, yeah. I, I,
0: it would be an interesting experiment. It would probably be more comedic. If I did it with you, yes. not really knowing it, that would be the way to do yeah, it. Yeah, I think no? it would be
1: hugely entertaining. <laughs> but, you know, we'd need to get a lot of other actors in here because it's a big cast of characters.
0: Well, it's gonna, well you can do uh, many voices. You can do. You can do. Oh, all right. The, so it could be like a one-man show. Yeah. Why don't you? Oh. Do, why haven't you tried that? Yeah. Great idea. Because you know who I had in here yesterday. I had Peter Bogdanovich in here.
1: Did and, you? Uh huh. I wish I had known. Uh, there was a time I was seeing Peter a great deal. Yeah. He became very friendly.
0: Well, he he recalled when I said you were coming. He recalled the performance of your one-man show, the Christmas Carol show. Yes. And he said that he had to compose himself. After the performance, before he met you, because he was too emotional, and then he said he could not help but crying anyways. He, he did. <laughs> it was a memorable occasion. First of all,
1: I was thrilled to meet him because mm-hmm. I've enjoyed his work. Enjoyed? No, no, no. That's too light a word. I've loved his work. Yeah. And and uh, he he's, I was almost ready to leave the theater right. when he, he showed up. And um, it's true. He started to talk about the performance. And began to weep yeah um, but you know that's a Christmas Carol is a very potent story it's a very simple story and often people think of it as just a Christmas story or even just a children's story yeah but in fact, it's about redemption. And, and if you have a life or a history that maybe needs a little bit of redeeming, then I think uh, <laughs> Christmas Carol is going to affect you. <laughs> I need that. I yeah. need redeeming. Yeah, we, 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 we all of us would be helped by a little bit of redemption.
0: Well, what compelled you to, because I didn't really know about that, but that is something that you, you did, uh, you know, once you, once you got here, right, you were in Los Angeles, Well, it was
1: uh, my response to this, the growing realization that Mm -hmm. Star Trek, the next generation was not going to be the failure that everybody had predicted it would be, including my own agent. When I balked at the idea of signing a contract for six years, he said, don't worry, don't worry, you'll (laughs) you'll be lucky to make it through the first season. You cannot revive an iconic (laughs) show like like Star Trek. It's a crazy idea. So, you know, come. Make a little bit of money for the first time in your life. Yeah. Get a suntan, you uh-huh. know, meet uh-huh. some girls. Yeah. and uh, Hollywood, and man. Go- exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. Um, anyway, the story turned out to be very different, and it only underlined what the great William Goldman said about, in Hollywood, nobody knows anything about anything. Yeah. And um, we were a hit. Yeah. So I... I, I I knew all of those stories about English actors that had come to Hollywood. Like about um, who? Like which were the ones that stood out? In well, your I mean, you, I mean, English actors, great English actors, Olivier, Richard, Richard Burton, yeah, Peter O'Toole, right, uh, Tony Hopkins, yeah, um, all actors who came here and didn't come back. Right. Uh, You know, I mean, Tony is somebody I miss a great deal so far as his stage work is concerned. Uh, But I understand it's a very pleasant life in Los Angeles. You've grown to understand that? uh, (laughs) Yeah. And and even though I was here for 17 years till I couldn't take it anymore and I left. But um, the... What I was scared of was that that would happen to me and that I would lose my... Nerve about being on the stage. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd, I'd heard stories from so many actors that this had happened. You stay away too long, and from you can from the stage. You can't get back on there. Well, you get a fear, I'd imagine. I, indeed, exactly that. So I was determined this was not going to happen to right. me. Yeah. So during the second season of Star Trek, um, after I'd done my laundry on Saturday mornings, which was my uh, system that I had, I, and I still <laughs> do my own laundry. I was doing it all day yesterday. It's it's just a Grounding? slight obsession that but I. It, 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 as somebody said to me the other day on the platform of the subway station in Brooklyn where I live, hey man, you keeping it real?
0: <laughs> they said to me. And, um, Longies, but it's one of those weird things. Like, I, you know, in between these last two interviews, I, I, I've embarked on trying to make, uh, horchata, the Mexican, uh, drink, the rice drink. And there are things that you do that, that really sort of ground you and connect you, you know, to, to just being a person. Exactly. <laughs>
1: um, uh, uh, there is something therapeutic. I'm not exactly sure what the nature of that therapy you... really is, but it, it um,
0: I, I just like the routine. Of do you, are you? It, you, do you had, are you like a uh, guy who needs to have his things folded a certain way? Uh, yes,
1: yeah. <laughs> I, I I wash my T-shirts. I do yeah. underwear, socks, and T-shirts. That's all. Nothing yeah. else. Right. Um, so don't think about giving me your shirts. Okay, to take that, away you, with you me. You don't want I'm the bag. I'm no, 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 no. Okay. Uh, that I couldn't cope with. Uh, yeah. But uh, the T-shirts, I have a way of folding them, right. and uh, uh, it's um, it it pleases me. <laughs> yeah. Some people think it's eccentric. Anyway, these weekends in the second season of uh-huh. Star Trek, I spent most of Saturday, devising solo shows for myself. I actually created about six of them in a few weeks, mm-hmm. and one of them was a version of Christmas Carol. I'd had the idea when my—I my, used to be a choir boy in my church in England, and they they wanted to raise money. I think the organ need, needed Which restoring. Which Oh, this was called Murfield Parish. But it was church. a Church of England. Uh, it, it was, it was uh, yes, Church of England, uh, an Anglican yeah. church. And so I said I would, uh, I would put on this performance for them before Christmas, and they pretty much sold out the the church. And I it was read just you, just then. Me. And how old were you then? I was, uh, I was in my forties.
0: Oh, 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 I thought,
1: I, I I thought when you a were child. a kid you did it. Oh, no, no, okay. no, no, no. I was going to say, no, that's no. impressive doing all that. No, I, I don't think anyone would have come did to see me <laughs> reading a Christmas carol when I was a kid. <laughs> so I did this thing, mm-hmm. and unfortunately I didn't cut it enough. So the audience sat there for nearly four hours in this rather <laughs> drafty <laughs> Gothic Victorian church. But the story got to me. And when I, I was thinking about. Sh- Compiling shows yeah. that I could easily perform, that I could pack everything I needed into the trunk of my car mm-hmm. and take it to a college or a community center, right. a campus somewhere, sure. um, and, and in that way keep my stage chops in, in, in you know. But it, you
0: wanted to be a, a touring uh, uh, act, you were sort of it's almost like a comedian like i can just throw this in the car yeah yeah exactly but self-contained limited lighting <laughs> absolutely yeah. i needed nothing
1: at all really right. except yeah minimal lighting and some decent clothes to right. wear comfortable yeah. clothes um that you and, washed yeah, yeah yeah that i'd washed myself <laughs> um but i took um I, I took this christmas carol idea very seriously and i remember i i Cut it properly this time. I got it cut down, and I wanted to tell a version of the story because it had always seemed to me that the sentimental side of *Christmas Carol* was what had been um, emphasised, a- except in the great Alastair Sim's black and white British film version, in which he played a, a real monster, yeah. as Scrooge. I wanted to uh, the pro the th- the piece to be more about what we've been discussing—redemption. So. Um, I read it for a group of uh, uh, teachers, professors from the English department at UCLA. I read it one evening on the hearth rug of uh, my friend's house with all of these scholars sitting around me. And they all said, you've got a show there. Uh, You you know, you should put it together. So I, I did it with the script in my hand I had piles of script dotted about the stage uh-huh. uh, because I ha- I couldn't learn it it was right. a 2 hour show right. but then a um, good friend of mine said I'm taking you to Broadway with this show it's 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 too good just to be taking around campuses so then you had to memorize then I had it. then I had
0: to learn it <laughs> yes so it was interesting so you decided to to showcase it for academics to make sure you were on the level with
1: it yes exactly I wanted I, I wanted to have confirmation that what I was doing with the story was not undermining it or was not in, in some way being disrespectful to what the great Dickens yeah. had done. Don't want to diminish Dickens. No, uh, you, you don't. At your peril. <laughs> yeah. So they gave me a thumbs up and I went ahead. And then finally, I had to sit down and learn 49 pages of, That's, uh, but not, but not unlike Shakespeare you get the rhythm I imagine you do and it sticks I mean I haven't performed this now for many many years but you know if we had the time I could start right you know right now Marley was dead to begin with uh, there is absolutely no doubt about that mm-hmm. the uh, you know and the, yeah, I could yeah. go on and for there but I but you, you don't want to hear Dickens this morning
0: well I do like the idea that the fear of not doing stage work and the fact that, you know, when you think about Anthony Hopkins, that you have some uh, nostalgia or melancholy that he's not being, you know, what he used to be on stage. Because I have no idea really about Anthony Hopkins on stage or, or I have oh. not seen you work on stage either. But there's something because I just saw some theater recently and I don't go a lot. And there's something necessary and irreplaceable about the experience as an audience member, as and a performer for stage. And and uh, I, I know why it is. It is because, unlike television or
1: film, mm-hmm. the the air that is being breathed in that theater is being breathed by the performer and by the audience, too. And the audience become a part of the performance. Sometimes I, I meet audiences after a play, and they, they always seem surprised when I insist that they are a very important part of that unique performance because every stage performance is unique. Yes. it Nothing... Is it ever simply repeated? Yeah. Um, you know, so many things can affect how you perform, how you feel, are you well, are you unwell, did you have a good day, have you got a headache, did sure. you have enough to eat, did yeah. you have too much yeah. to eat? Yeah. Are um, you awake? Are, are, are you drunk? <laughs> exactly. All of those elements <laughs> have got to be taken into account. And so um, it 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 is a one-off experience. And um, that's why I think theater has so much power, potential power, mm-hmm. to change the way people feel. And I, I do remember um, a friend of mine coming to see Christmas Carol on when it was on Broadway, one of the occasions, mm-hmm. and she said to me, I wish you could have seen the people leaving the theater. By the looks on their faces, I knew they were not feeling the same things they had been feeling when they walked into the theater. In other words, what you did, you and Dickens between you, had changed them that evening, made them think differently about the world. And that's the best possible comment you can ever hear about a stage performance.
0: And yeah, because everyone has their own human experience with it. Whereas you go to a movie, it's a very controlled situation. and, And most of the time you leave a movie and it's gone. It's it's you know it's just, it can be yeah it, it can be I mean
1: there are movies that stick for me um, but it it there I guess is I'm a, talking
0: about a certain type of movie yeah yeah, yeah. there
1: is a <laughs> there is a distancing uh-huh. effect I find by film and television but. When you're watching flesh and blood right. and the actor is experiencing these things and communicating that experience directly in action, live to an audience,
0: it's very potent. But there's a built-in vulnerability to it because it is just flesh and blood up there. And there's a moment, like, sometimes just when a play starts, I, I almost start crying. Even It doesn't uh-huh. matter what it is. Really? really? Yeah, because you're beginning this... This thing with these people, and they're people, and there's a lot on the line. Yes, yes, yes. There's a a built-in vulnerability
1: to it, no matter what it is. And and the key to that, I think, is that uh, everything is happening for the first time. Right. Uh, It doesn't matter how many performances you've done at the play. uh, When I prepare to go on for the first entrance... I know nothing about the next three hours. My mind is a blank. All I know is that I have one thing that I've got to take one step and walk onto the stage. Then I have a line to speak. But beyond that, I know nothing. For instance... And you just hope you take off. I mean, you don't want to be thinking about that. If you're thinking about the cues or whatever, you're in trouble, right? Disaster. No, 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 no. It's, it's you know, living in the moment. Right. Uh, which is a cliche about performance, but it's really, really important. For example, um, I did a production of the great 20th century American masterpiece, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, right. Edward Albee's yeah. astonishing play. And that play, the curtain goes up on an empty living room. Mm-hmm. And then you hear a key being put into a lock. The lock turns, the door opens, and on into the living room walk George and Martha. And Martha says her first line. Well, I asked the the uh, set builders if they would put a real lock on the outside and give me the key because, when when I was standing behind that door waiting to begin this three hour long mammoth of a play, yeah, uh, all I knew was I have this key in my hand. I put in the lock and I turn it, yeah, and I don't know anything else right. at all. <laughs> it's it's it sounds a bizarre way to approach creativity, but it it. Allows you more convincingly to be in that moment, to react spontaneously, not like somebody who has had five right. weeks of rehearsal, right, it, or it, 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 done twenty performances of it already. But it is literally happening. Pulls for the you first into the time. present. Yeah, yeah, and it it makes it makes it exciting.
0: Yeah. So when wh- I mean, but when did this all start for you? I mean, when you, where did you grow up exactly? I grew up in the north of England.
1: In the West Riding of yorkshire um and I grew up speaking not just with an accent but speaking dialect we we were um w- i what does it sound like uh, uh you want an example yeah okay um i uh, I would go to a friend's house, yeah, to see uh if he could come out to play right, and I would say to him, lekinat." what atta okay atta yeah. art thou yeah." Because I used thee and thou when I was a child. Really? Yes, yes. It was kind of standard. Thee, that's no good, you know. Um, Atta, lakin, atta, art thou, or are you. Lakin is a dialect word for playing. And actors in the 16th, 17th, 18th century were known as lakers. Uh So lakin can mean acting or it can mean playing soccer. So this was just what your family spoke? Yes, yeah. And all my friends and all, my, all the neighbors, everyone around spoke with this dialect. So we understood one another. It was people from another part of England who's, oh, and, uh, heaven forfend, from another country who would be very, very confused by what we said.
0: And this is, uh, they, are there other
1: dialects in England or is this like, oh, oh many, many. Uh, and I. Uh, uh, you know, there was, there was a, a, a dialect expert uh-huh. who identified just in the area where I grew up five different accents.
0: And what is this? What are these old? These are old English words usually? Or they, they, are, they are. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, as I said, using the word laker is is one of them for player. Middle English, would it be? Um, yes, mm-hmm. it will have its roots, certainly in Middle English. Mm-hmm. Um, my my mother's sister we were a kind of performing family it was, mm. you were not thought weird or a show off if at a party or Christmas time you stood up and recited something or <laughs> sang a song or played a musical instrument um, uh, my aunt used to recite this poem every every Christmas yeah. she was not an actress she was not a performer but it was the same poem and it started like this I was sitting by arson last evening. My mother and father were yoff, cos they'd heard that my old aunt Susanna, well laid up in bed we a cough, she's some brasses, me my old aunt Susanna. That's reason she's looked after so. If they've note, well, the note, but a bother. There's a sample we owed Uncle Joe. Now that's how people talked huh. in my community.
0: So I think I understood the first little idea of the first sentence. It was it slightly dirty.
1: You didn't understand? No, it wasn't dirty. You were thinking of the word arson. <laughs> arson. Is a version of a um, uh, fireplace. Uh-huh. I was sitting by the fireplace right. last night. I was sitting by arson last evening. Right. Uh, arson it, because it, it comes from ash yeah, and yeah. coal where yeah, you yeah. burn where you burn the fire. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, so that all had to go. Right. I, I got an acting teacher when I was twelve, which is a little bit presumptuous. Do I You have suppose. other siblings. I had two brothers, two older brothers, uh-huh. yeah. and uh, it was my oldest brother who got me interested in Shakespeare because he loved Shakespeare, and he would read bedtime stories to me um, when he was in the RAF, when he came home on leave, uh, but the bedtime stories he wrote, he read to me were Macbeth and King Lear and those Hamlet, are, of course. Heavy and I heavy did, to go to sleep to. I, I, <laughs> yes, it is, I didn't. Understand very much, yeah. But I, well, a, I loved it that my brother was reading to me. That was great because he was seventeen years older than oh me, my much gosh. older. Really, and I, I, I loved the sound of the words. Yeah. But there was a phrase in Hamlet. He used to love to do Hamlet's soliloquies. Mm-hmm. But there was a phrase in the most famous soliloquy of all: "To be or not to be." When Hamlet says, "When we have shuffled off this mortal." coil you know when, yeah. when we have ended our yeah. life in yeah. other words well w- in, in my part of the world we pronounced coal c o a l yeah. as coil right c o i l right so when my when my brother read shuff, shuffled off this mortal coil yeah. i heard shuffled and thought well he must mean shovelled so it's a line about somebody shovelling coal right And I believed that until I was well into my teens. It's Um, it's like not knowing the lyrics of a song, and you say them wrong. Well, uh, for example, let me give you another instance of that, because it'll it'll give you an idea of how I was brought up and lived. My brother and I listened to the radio, and every Saturday morning, there was a, a record program for children called Children's Choice. And you would write in requesting it for a birthday for a friend who was sick, and we uh, often the songs will be repeated. So we learnt the lyrics of all of these songs. Yeah. But there was one Dean Martin song. Oh, yeah. And we heard him sing it many times, and we learnt the lyrics. And I thought it went, When the moon hits your eye like a big piece of pie. Sure, that's sure. But it's not big piece no, of pie. No, it's pizza. But why was I singing piece of pie? Yeah. Because I didn't know what a pizza was. I, I'd never seen a pizza, right. ne- never heard of them. Sure. It, it was something completely foreign. So we decided he must be singing rather clumsily, Piece of
0: Pie. <laughs> right. And the other incident is you were really too young to even probably take in the idea of the mortal coil. That you exactly. Pro- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you knew what that meant, it would probably be disturbing.
1: It, it would have been disturbing, confusing. <laughs> so I happily settled for shoveling coal <laughs> rather yeah. than talking about the necessary end to life.
0: So your oldest brother was 17 years old? Yeah. And the middle brother was how many years older? Five. Oh, okay. So, so the first one was uh, like a, a long time before.
1: Oh, oh yeah. And uh, because my uh, uh, my father got my mother pregnant and immediately joined the army <laughs> and uh, didn't marry her and mm-hmm. went off. And he was in actually stationed in India with the British Army in India, the Raj, all through the 20s and early 30s. Uh, then after 10 years, he came home and he married her.
0: And that was during World War what? Oh, I was you, between World War One and World, World War Two. Yeah,
1: but uh, of course he was old enough uh, to be conscripted during the. Um, my my eldest brother was so he was in the RAF for his war years. Mm. How, what year? What, what war was that? That would be the Second World War, nineteen thirty nine to nineteen forty five. He really he was he was old enough to be uh, in the RAF, and of course my father was away at the war all the time. I I I had an idyllic. F- First four and a half, five years of my life, born in 1940, thinking, because I've, I've worked out the dates, because I know when he left home to go into the army. Your father that or your brother? My, my father. Yeah. I was probably conceived on his last night in England. Right. Or last night as a civilian. <laughs> sure. It, it works out properly. Yeah. And so for the next four years, I lived with my mother and my brother, and we had a, nice a happy, time. idyllic life. Yeah. Um, and then- this big man suddenly showed up when I was four, going on five, and uh, changed everything for us. That you knew from pictures, uh, yeah, only from pictures. Yeah, yeah. And of course, he was wearing uniform, and he was—he um, finished his army career as a superstar. He was regimental sergeant major of the parachute regiment. He was—he was an airborne division, and as such, had a very, very important job.
0: Uh huh. And and you, you've spoken about him uh, publicly a lot. Mm -hmm. And he came home uh, uh, a a volatile person. Yes. Um, He, and I
1: didn't know this until a very few years ago, that... They called it shell shock in those days. Um, his experiences in 1940 with the British Expeditionary Force, when we first invaded Europe after the outbreak of war, it was a disaster. It went horribly yeah. wrong. And what led to the evacuation of the British forces from Dunkirk? Yeah. In fact, my father was in Cherbourg. He was on the last ship to leave Cherbourg for England, and the, uh, the Nazis were already in the suburbs of right. the town yeah. when his boat actually sailed. So, so he was very very fortunate to get out. Otherwise, he'd have spent those four years in a prison of war camp. So he saw a lot of action, in other words. He saw a great deal of action, yes. And once he joined the parachute regiment, which he did, I think, in 1942, uh, he jumped into action, I think, four times. I mean,
0: into action meaning that his parachute opened and he was being shot at. So to, to find a definition for whatever you experienced, Yet, how were you framing it before you were able to be sympathetic to uh, to to how you were brought up? I mean, to to, to deal with post traumatic stress and and to to see it that way, the, the, I imagine it created an empathy that you didn't have before. Uh, it certainly did a huge empathy
1: because um, I have talked publicly for a number of years now. For a long time, I couldn't about about the violence in my home. Uh, my father. Be- Proved to be a weekend alcoholic, so the weekends were dangerous times. Mm-hmm. Uh, not always. Sometimes he would come back from the pub or the club, wherever he'd been, in a good mood, and mm-hmm. that was lovely, mm-hmm. and we could all have a good night's sleep. Sometimes he would be uh, ill-tempered, and and it could lead to blows and uh, police and to everybody in the and... family, or to no, 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 only my mother. He never, never struck myself or my brother. Um, and so when I became active in the world of, of um, uh, d- domestic violence mm-hmm. issues I joined a one brilliant organization in England called refuge mm-hmm. which provides safe houses for women and children um, two women in the UK die every week at the hands of a partner lover mm-hmm. husband or what it's it's the figures are are terrifying and um, and so my father got a very, very bad press for a very long time. And then I learned this thing about him being um, suffering from PTSD in 1940, which was never treated. There was no treatment for it. Just man up. Exactly. Yeah. You know, be a man. Right. P- pull yourself together and be a man. That's all the help he would have been given. And when I talked to an expert on PTSD and I told him about my father's behavior in his life, he said, all of these are classic symptoms yeah. of sufferers from this. So I, just, I resolved then to do for the memory of my father what I've been doing for the memory of my mother. And I joined another organization called Combat Stress, which specializes in
0: providing care for veterans who suffer from PTSD. It's it's amazing work. And it's uh, it's beautiful that you're doing that. I can't see. like, I can't even imagine what that turn must have been and how much. Like to, because, you know, everyone has problems. Well, most people have problems with, with their parents, I think. And sure. and, and something yeah, so dramatic yeah. that is so yeah. traumatizing for so long, to, to find relief from that just by having a different way of looking at it. Yes. Um, it, it,
1: it was a very emotional moment because I was given this news on camera. They were filming me for a program called Who Do You Think You Are? Yeah. And uh, it's a w- wonderful BBC program where they, they they look at a person's life and history and ancestors and choose someone, if there is someone interesting, to find out about and to take the the, the living subject person back on a journey into the life of this right. ancestor.
0: Like this is your life kind of thing. Y-
1: yes, mm-hmm. Exactly. In my case, to my astonishment, because they tell you nothing in advance, the cameras began rolling, and I realized it was my father's life they were going to examine, and I wasn't sure I wanted to do that.
0: Um, but were you ta- were he, was he alive? No, no. Now, no. When, w- how, long, how old were you when he passed? Um, I was in my late thirties. Were you guys able to have a relationship? Yes, um,
1: but it was not a very sustained one because of the anger um, yes yes indeed uh, it 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 was difficult being in his company
0: and okay so you so you're on the show and and they say it's going to be your father's life no, they don't say that. They just left it up to me to work it out. Oh, my God. Um,
1: and and uh, They just
0: read, start reading you stories?
1: I- I- yes, that's right. In this case, it was about my, my father's military history. Uh, we were in the, um, we were in the, uh, the war museum uh-huh. in, in London. And uh, they tell you nothing, you see. And I, I've been advised, um, pack a bag for a few nights away, um, put in some wet weather gear, and bring your passport. This was when I went to do this interview at the Imperial War Museum. Well, then we got into a car when the interview was over, and it was only by looking at the road signs I realized we were going to Portsmouth. And I thought, aha, we're going to get on a ferry and go somewhere. I didn't yeah. know where we were yeah. going. In yeah. fact, we went to France, and the next morning I was standing in on a spot by a railway line, where the military historian I was with told me my father would certainly have stood because they knew exactly what happened to the train that he was on uh, outside a French town called um, uh, Abville did they know what happened in your family um, did, did, i don 't think those i don 't think that particular man did know, but later on, I was to meet someone who did, and he was the one who showed me this newspaper cutting that. That uh, Corporal Alfred Stewart had returned home severely shell shocked. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know even if my mother ever knew that, but certainly the boys we 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 didn't know that he was suffering. And I was assured nothing would ever have got better for for him. All his life, he would have stayed with the trauma of that uh, those experiences because what happened to him when they were outside Abville. Um, They were bombed and strafed and shelled. They had to abandon their train, and then they had to walk back to Cherbourg from where they were. It was a long hike. And along the way, there were all kinds of horrific incidents of uh, columns of refugees and civilians just being gunned down on the highway from from planes attacking them. Uh, A lot of this, my father would have witnessed and experienced, and um, it, it left him marked for life.
0: It's, it i it, it, you know it's, it's sad but it's a, a, an amazing gift that you were able to be given this new information yes. To, yes to i can't imagine the unburdening to to let go of some of that anger and yes
1: and th- that was most important because anger is a bad thing to oh, hold it's, on to it's cancer. and uh, um but yet it also left me feeling that i i should I, I should find some way of making it up to him. I'd, I'd said all these, t- told these public stories about what he did and how he behaved. and um, Without being
0: sympathetic. Yeah,
1: exactly. And now I wanted to, I can now put it in a context. My father was sick.
0: He right. was yeah. ill
1: and didn't right. know what he was doing. Had no control over what he was doing. Uh, that doesn't mean to say that I condone the violence. Violence is never yeah. a solution right. to anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, you 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 know, th- 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 this is why a, a, a fairly recent movement in this area saying domestic violence is not a, a woman's issue
0: yeah it's a man's issue yeah
1: um, okay there are some women who beat up their husbands
0: that yeah. does that does happen it's very rare it, and also it's weird with domestic violence because there's this weird uh stigma around it to uh, other people exact, aren't supposed to be get involved exactly, they don't get involved exactly um and it's Humiliating
1: and embarrassing for everyone. Yeah, Um, and that was one of the things I struggled with as a child was the sense of shame I carried with me. Because when fights arose in my house and there would be yelling and so forth, things being thrown, we lived in a community where people were cheek by jowl. Sure, and so everyone would hear that. In fact, we had a wonderful neighbour. Her name was Lizzie Dixon, and Lizzie Dixon worked in a weaving shed and had done all her life. And she was a big, powerful woman. And I do quite clearly remember one night her throwing our front door open. We, we never locked our doors. Right. Throwing the front door open when my father was in one of his rages, and standing in front of him and raising her fist in his face and saying, come on, Alf Stewart, you try it on me. Let's see how far you get with that. Come on, have a go at me, because she would have flattened him. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> great, great woman. I wish I wish I could meet her again to say thank you to her, because oh, she she God. often stepped in and stopped things from getting worse. You know? Really? But, a lot. But it was it was embarrassing. It was humiliating. And there's and, no
0: consistency in the house. You don't know, no. you, know wh- you know, there's no way to define love. No. Because, you know, who was he going to be? Yeah, it, it, it was... Truly chaos. And when you look back at your creative career, you know, how do you frame that? Like, you know, your desire to, to act uh, in, in relation to, to that emotional situation. Well, thanks to my
1: 17 years living in Los Angeles and some expensive but high quality therapy, uh-huh. I have been able to put those pieces together. I think the initial attraction to me of being an actor yeah. was that I could avoid being myself. Sure. I could be someone other than Patrick Stewart and in a different environment from the one that I lived in. And from the first moment that I ever walked on stage in front of a darkened auditorium with a couple of hundred people sitting there, I was never afraid. I was never fearful. I didn't suffer from stage fright because I felt so safe. On that stage, Mm. I wasn't Patrick Stewart. I wasn't in the environment that frightened me. Um, I was pretending to be someone else, and I liked the other people I pretended to be. So I felt nothing but security for being on stage. And I think that's what drew me to this
0: strange job of playing make-believe, which is what we do. It's, it's um, interesting to me, Ian, because <laughs> when I spoke to, to Sir Ian, you know, and you guys are friends, like, he was able to sort of identify that the shame he felt from being closeted it, di- uh, it did yeah. not able him uh, to have an emotional life. Yes, yes. So he could play these parts where he mm. had a full emotional life. Yeah. I,
1: I, I have heard Ian talk. We've, we have shared our experience, uh-huh. of course. We we shared a dressing room for six months when we were doing Waiting for God. And we talked often about these things. Um, it's... Uh, uh, for instance, yeah. uh, I could not act anger for many, many, many years because you were too afraid of it. Exactly. Wow. I was fearful what might come out if I really because, as as an actor, you tap into real experiences, uh-huh. real emotions. You know, we have this, uh, w- we have this life experience which only builds and builds and gets more and more uh, profound. Yeah, yeah. With each year that you live and. Nothing is ever wasted on an actor. No experience is ever wasted mm-hmm. because you store it away. It goes into this bank account of experience, and then you want to uh, you want to be thought to be uh, having a true, a genuine, ex- an authentic experience yeah. on stage. You tap into those things that will help you. To provide that, to give the appearance of authenticity. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I couldn't do I faked anger for years and years and years and years. And indeed the directors would say to me, That's not quite working, Is you it, know. Can we find
0: another way to do it? it's getting stuck somewhere. Well, yeah. of course it was. well you to be at the to to, to, to be witness of real unbridled rage. Mm-hmm. How how would you I, you must have been terrified to put, you know, what was in you? You had to assume on some level that part of your father was in you. I I, I know
1: what and I knew what was in me it was many of the same things that my father felt I I know that now without doubt I I have occasions very rare now because I like to think that I am more understanding of myself and more in control of myself um I I like to think that um I can go into a place of anger, of rage, of fury, Mm. and can contain it to the character that I'm playing and not let it break out. Because in my ordinary private life, there have been moments. It happened with a paparazzi a few months ago. Really? Yeah. Just a few months ago? Just a few months ago. This incident lasted seconds. You felt it. I was shaking from what I had done and ashamed that I had lost control. Even though it had worked and I got into the safety of of my car with a driver, I had let myself down. But it happened so fast. Scary. There was no opportunity right. to, to say, I'm feeling this. I'm going to get control of it. I will not let go. No, th- there was, it was totally impulsive. There was no reasoning behind it. I did not prepare myself for that. It happened to me as if it was happening to somebody
0: else. And that's the scariest part of rage. Yes, it oh, is. Oh, my God. And it's, you feel like a, it's a <clears throat> possession. And then there's that immediate moment where you're like, oh my God, my fucking father. Yes. And, absolutely. And they, you know, they put yeah. the wiring in why it, it makes sense. Yeah. And then the shame comes back. Uh-huh. Oh, so,
1: uh, when I played Macbeth a few years ago, we yeah. did it as a sort of cold war production. It was set, set, uh, as if it might've been in a Soviet satellite country, yeah. um, you know, after the second world war. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'd rehearse this for six or eight weeks. Um, but it wasn't until the first dress rehearsal when I was in my military uniform with a forage cap on my head, and I had a little ritual. My my dresser would stand by the dressing room door and hand me an AK-47, which I took on stage with me, tucked under my arm. Um, and she would give me this thing, and I turned to look in the mirror. I'd grown a mustache for this mm, role, mm. and I don't know why... I, I mean, a, a mustache on Macbeth, it kind of sounds a little bit weird. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Until I looked in the mirror to check that I had everything I needed. And my father was looking straight back at oh. me. I'd actually created him. It's interesting that <clears throat> I wasn't going to play a good guy. I was playing one of the worst monsters in drama, <laughs> Macbeth. Yeah. Um, and I had made myself look like my father. And there had been no... Conscious rational choices behind those decisions at all until I saw what I looked like
0: in the mirror and and did you find? That you were able to process anything in those performances that oh, like... v- very much so yes Very much
1: so Be- because I knew then that I could let the rage the fury the 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 violence out Authentically and nothing bad would happen to me in fact I would be helping myself because it is therapeutic. Absolutely, and how are
0: those performances received? Um pretty well. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, it we did uh, we opened that production in Chichester uh, d- down on the Chichester Festival Theatre. It was so successful we transferred to the West End of London. That was so successful we wow. took the show to Brooklyn Academy of Music in New York and that sold out before we got off the plane that the equity very very kindly allowed us to transfer the whole production to Broadway where we played another 12 weeks. So you might say that my father had some <laughs> hand in making that production such a success because when my son's mother-in-law came to see it in New York, they live on Long Island, um, my son and his wife and uh, her parents were going to come backstage Uh my daughter-in-law's mother refused to come backstage she said no way am i going back to meet that guy she had met me before and we got on very well she said you'll find me in the bar across the road and she went in there to have a drink to get macbeth out of her system
0: that's fascinating man so you've been here you were in hollywood for 17 years and you made a choice to move. you were brought here uh, uh, on an opportunity. Yes, exactly. So before that happened, you were just primarily a stage actor, and you'd done television in Britain and some movies. I'd, I'd done some television, uh, not a lot, and I had
1: appeared in quite small roles in some movies. Um, my, my biggest break that I got while I was still living in England was to be cast in David Lynch's movie Dune. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, uh, that was, I guess, the first time that anything
0: that I had done had really been seen in the United States and so how where were you like in terms of your your attitude about acting were you comfortable were you happy to be was your career okay
1: uh, <clears throat> yeah it it was and it was not long before that that i had had this um this kind of epiphany as a result of a conversation that i had had with a director who was about to direct me in a show. I was going to play a character called Leontes in The Winter's Tale. Mm -hmm. This is another Macbeth type. He's a very, very bad man. I mean, he kills his own son. He kills his wife. A horrible man. And this director said to me, "I I, I want you to do this because I think this man actually exists inside you now i had never talked to him about the things we have been talking about yeah. but this man was a director and a psychologist uh-huh. in fact oh really oh, yeah. and he said felt it. he felt it when you do this role i want you to tap that leontes which already exists inside of you and i said whoa, whoa oh, i don't think i can do that he said listen you do this trust me and i will always be at your side Nothing bad will happen to you because if you fall, I will catch you. I mean, that's an incredible statement for a director to say, but I believed him and trusted him. So I went on stage and I played this monster. A friend of mine, an uh, English professor at UCLA, came to see it several times and actually said to me, you would have had more success in this role, Patrick. I had a modest success with it, but you would have had more success if we had not felt we shouldn't be watching That what was happening to you was too private, too uh, internal, too exclusive, too shocking to reveal. He said, all the time I was watching you, I wanted to look away. Really? to see. So I put that down as a success. Sure. And from that moment on, I couldn't fake it anymore. Yeah. Because I'd had the experience of tapping my own feelings and exposing my own feelings. And I wasn't going to go back to fakery it's 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 interesting
0: to me that that now with the, with blunt talk and you know, I know Jonathan Ames I know a couple of the writers uh Duncan Birmingham used to write for my show that it it seems that after years of uh of doing you know Picard and then then years of doing a uh, Professor Xavier that these are, are relatively controlled people mm mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as characters, they're <coughs> grounded. They're they're intense. They're they you know they're leaders, but they are in control of themselves. Right, right. And now Blunt is is, a, is sort of this w- exciting comedic opportunity. He's a flawed character. He's, had, uh, you know, he's been married several times. You've been married a few times. You, I, I imagine as the series goes on, we'll meet those wives and, and we'll get more of that backstory. Mm-hmm. We, we meet uh, the most recent wife in, uh, in this first
1: season. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm looking forward to meeting Walter's first wife because I've got a good idea who I would like to play that. An English actress I admire very much and it would be fun to have her on the show. But um, at the moment, we've met two sons, uh, ages about 40 years difference in their ages. <laughs> a five-year-old and a 45-year-old, actually, I can talk about it now, played by my son. Oh, good. My own son. Uh, plays Walter's son.
0: Has your relationship <clears throat> now... You, you're on your third wife, right? Uh, can we rephrase that a little bit? I'm sorry. I, I mean, you're I, married I, to the woman you love. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay. I knew you, you could do it. And and <laughs> <laughs> you're on and your you've, third you've, wife. You finally found happiness indeed i have okay yes. oh yes uh, so we've reframed that and you have uh, you have two children or three i have two children four grandchildren from from, from my first wife yes yes now if, you, if it's not too personal uh, now in 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 the course of their upbringing that uh, now i don't know how did your like we've talked about your father a little bit but he obviously lived long enough to see you work He did, and he came to see me a
1: lot. I think he was quite proud of what I was achieving Um, when I was in regional theater and then particularly when I joined the Royal Shakespeare Company, and he saw me there many
0: times. And was there a resistance to the pride at first, and then finally you you felt, did did that mean something to you, even with your anger that that this man was so impressed Mm. with you? It did
1: mean something to me, yes. Uh, Meant a great deal to me. Um, I think at first he thought that there was that this mm, enthusiasm for acting and then wanting to become a professional actor was was pretty silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, nobody in my family had ever become an actor. You know, we they worked in factories, in industry. They went down the so coal like, mines, yeah. you know. Um, <clears throat> but when he saw that I was making a career of it, o- albeit a modest career, mm-hmm. I was... Uh, I was out of work for three weeks when I left drama school, and then I got a job as an acting ASM in Weekly Rep, a a different play every Monday night. Right. Um, uh, I was never out of work again for about 18 years. Yeah. I worked continually. And I think this impressed him because my father had a terrific work ethic, Uh and and he could see that I could make a living, I, I could afford to get married, I could buy a house. I could educate my children. uh, And this was all through this peculiar job that I chose to do. And I I think he felt real pride about my achievements. I wish very much both my parents could have seen my Star Trek experiences because I think I think my father would have appreciated Jean-Luc Picard, mm-hmm. and I think he would have been happy to see that I could make something of a military figure um, and give him um, a three-dimension, which perhaps he did not think me capable of. And, and to be aware that suddenly, and it was suddenly, it was overnight, um, my my reputation, my status as an actor went from well, if you didn't go to the Royal Shakespeare Company or occasionally watch obscure programs on the BBC, you didn't never heard of Patrick Stewart, and then Star Trek came along, and uh, it it,
0: and then it became were, a, a yeah. worldwide phenomenon.
1: Not me, but the the series. But did. you and, as well.
0: You, I mean, uh, it, you to an extent, yeah. I, I have to. <clears throat> so your father never saw the roles where you tapped the fury of him. No. Hmm. So, so I, I guess my question is, and we'll talk about Bacardi because I don't want. I, I obviously, I'm finding we could probably talk for a long time. The i guess uh, along the personal lines were were there how was your relationship with your sons Uh, was it touch and go did you find that you were still battling the ghost of your father and bringing these kids up um occasionally
1: um, I, i have a son
0: and a daughter Oh, i'm sorry
1: okay um and i i remember only once feeling violent towards my son and uh it it he had he had some irritating habits as a child. Mm-hmm. One of them was that when he came home from school, yeah. uh, when he was a teenager, he would make himself cups of tea and then take a pot of tea upstairs. He had a little, like, bed sitting room at the top of the house uh, and he would start doing his homework. He was, he was very rigorous about mm-hmm. that. Um, but he never brought the cups back down. Right. And I would go to the cupboard eventually and it would be bare, empty. Yeah. Nothing to drink a cup of coffee or coffee tea, yeah. and i would go up to his room and there would be 25 mugs yeah. all with uh, scum on uh-huh. them half drunk sure. cups of tea and coffee and uh and you know with with the stuff growing in them sure so this had happened once and i did grab him by the front of his shirt mm-hmm. and shake him Oof. but that as bad as it got oh, i was good. so irritated you know what he still does that thing today. So, uh, But we have a fantastic relationship. When I was arriving outside your front door, yeah. it was my son I was talking to on the phone because uh, we, we we had a great time when he came here to, to be in Blunt Talk and we're hoping that there will be more
0: appearances oh, uh, for him. Great. So the opportunity to do Star Trek was a fluke in a way, the way you've described it. You're mm. like, you'll just get in and out. We'll make a few bucks. And then it became a, a sort of a defining uh, role for you. Like you, you are associated with it forever. Mm. You go to Comic-Con and people want, <laughs> they they expect that. They expect Picard stories and they want, you meant you yeah. a lot to a lot of people. I, I'm not a Trekkie, so I don't have the depth of, the, the the what you must witness all the time. People that's, come that's up. All right,
1: and, <laughs> don't don't feel bad about that.
0: <laughs> but and then oh, the the X Men franchise is also a huge thing. It's very funny to me that you and. Uh, uh, Sir Ian McKellen have these recurring roles in these fantastic no. franchises. No. You must sit with each other and go like, it's unfucking believable. Y- y-
1: y- th- exactly that. <laughs> we we would often sit in our trailer when we made the first X Men movie, saying, "How did this come about? How did it happen?" <laughs> I'll tell you how it came about. And 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 I think the fact that the two of us and other actors who mm-hmm. have come into this uh, into this genre. Um, Spend so much time on a stage with heightened language in our mouths, playing kings, emperors, uh, tyrants, villains, uh, uh, clowns, whatever, and and so we fitted very comfortably into the world of fantasy and science fiction because we'd already been in it for a long time, right? And that there is uh, there is something heightened about both. Um, Star Trek and X Men, something that's not totally one hundred percent real. There is a there is sure, a, of course a theatricality about it. Shakespearean, yeah, absolutely Shakespearean. I've I have and Greek as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do remember the day sitting on the bridge of the Enterprise, very late one evening, and and uh, looking at the set, and suddenly realizing maybe the reason I am so comfortable on this set is that actually it represents an Elizabethan theater. Yeah. You know, there are entrances downstage left and downstage right. There are entrances up at the, <laughs> yeah. upstage left, upstage right. Uh-huh. There is even a raised area because in the original Globe or or, or the Playhouse, mm-hmm. they had a raised balcony at the back where they could play scenes that that were either you know meant to be elevated or they just wanted to separate them from the rest of the action that i had been inhabiting this uh, this spaceship bridge without realizing that in fact and and what about the captain's chair right it's a throne of course you know yeah. i mean i had i had two chairmen of the joint chiefs of staff i had one ex president and uh one um uh, Secretary of State say to me, "Oh, and one astronaut uh-huh. Buzz Aldrin uh-huh. no less, say to me, "Can I sit in the chair <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, uh, yeah. it, it it had such a such a reputation and um yes uh um Ronald Reagan came on the set and uh, and asked the, May I? Yes. Yes. Sit there. Of course he did. The old actor. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Yeah, and he looked great in, in that chair. So, yes, we even had a throne. And once early on in the series, when I was getting very irritated at the inference made by numerous journalists mm-hmm. that given my Royal Shakespeare Company Shakespeare background, that I was somehow slumming. Do you know what I mean by that term? Yeah, sure. I was going down market. Selling out. By, by selling out mm-hmm. by appearing in a syndicated science fiction show. What do they expect you guys to do? Uh, well, no, we're just earning a living! <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so, I turned on this journalist and I said, listen, understand one thing. Yeah. All those years of sitting in all those thrones of England was nothing but a preparation for sitting in the captain's chair of the Enterprise. <laughs> and And... That night, got driving home, yeah. I thought how accurate that really is. Uh-huh. Sitting in that exposed, yeah. uh, ritualistic seat mm-hmm. had all of the connotations of, of a throne. Mm-hmm. And uh, and again, I'd been doing this for a long time without realizing it.
0: You're- and
1: can I tell you one other thing? Of course. there's no There are no pockets in, in spacesuits none yeah and and i all those years of wearing tights yeah and and uh, and hose doublet and hose yeah. no no pockets at all <laughs> you can't put your fags in there or your, you know your yeah. lighter or your change for the telephone <laughs> I
0: guess, uh, not at all Because uh, there was no reason to carry things in space if it, it didn't fit on the belt or whatever certainly not on the enterprise all you had to do was ask the computer
1: for something and you got it so you you know it's one of the things i say to student actors try not to put your hands in your pockets when you when you perform because it actually it it doesn't seem convincing it's relaxing to you but actually it has an artificial look about it
0: um artificially relaxed
1: way back in 2000 yeah that uh, you remember the uh, presidential election of 2000 yes. won't you yeah. um well i i had been introduced um to um to the vice president when he was vice president at at an event at the white house i i was able to have a little conversation um when when he was uh, campaigning mm-hmm. for the presidency in 2000 um about about his physical presence when he was giving speeches on stage. Um, uh, Vice President Gore had a habit of putting one hand in his pocket and gesturing with the other one, yeah, that weird and then thing. taking that hand out of his pocket, putting the other hand in his pocket and gesturing with this hand. And, I, I, and he... Bless him. He listened. I said, "Don't do it. It looks insecure and weak." The strongest thing that you can ever do when yeah. you're facing an is just let your arms hang by your sides, because apart from anything else, mm-hmm. it's showing how relaxed you are—not sure. stiff, but relaxed. But it is also making you look vulnerable. Uh, and for a politician, that's a good thing. I don't think you told him in time. He crept up behind <laughs> me at an event a few years ago and tapped me on the shoulder and said, If I'd have listened more to you, <laughs> things could have been very different from me. He's
0: a he's a very delightful man. And the the relationship with the with McKellen, got stronger recently, right? You you guys were not friends necessarily in England, or you were?
1: Oh, oh n- not friends, no. Right. Um, Ian, you must understand, was a star from the beginning of his career. He was marked for stardom when he was still at Cambridge University. Mm-hmm. Um, he was giving outstanding performances then. I saw him work as a young actor. Mm-hmm. I, I was astonished by his versatility and range and and uh, Uh, And excitement that he brought to his stage performances. And furthermore, I knew I couldn't do what he was doing. He was better than me and would always be better than me. So I was just... A a distant fan. Then we worked on a stage production together. We only did a handful of performances of a new Tom Stoppard play, and I saw him in close-up. Well, that only just cemented even further what I felt about him, Mm -hmm. and and I was a little intimidated by him. He was very smart. I had had no education. Ian says that I'm obsessed with my bad education, Mm -hmm. because I always bring this up. I left school at 15. He went to Cambridge University. So I always kept a distance from him, until there we were in adjoining luxury trailers, yeah. in Toronto filming the first X-Men movie and as with films like that you know you spend much more time in your trailer sure. than you do on set acting because setups are so take so long and uh, so we hung out in one another's trailers and In Conversations began I think to realize how much we had in common how many things? Our love of Shakespeare, of uh, being in the Royal Shakespeare Company, the actors, the other directors—we admired um, the things that we
0: liked to do. The things we had a great deal in so common. So you learned all on the job. Yeah, that's amazing. It's really profound. And and then so you and Ian developed this relationship, and that's where your you're, you're uh, both being in Godot happened.
1: It it is. We were. Um, Ian was always going to do Waiting for Godot with this wonderful director, Sean Mathias. And they they met to have a conversation. So who should play the other tramp? And it was Ian who said, I think you should ask Patrick Stewart to do it. And I I, I, I was asked. I said yes instantly because it's a great legendary sure. play. And and the two characters are on stage for the entire play. Right. Uh, and uh, much of the play is a duologue between the two of them. Yeah. So the idea of sharing the stage in uh, a Sam Beckett, play with sir Ian wow. was irresistible but Ian said to me I think before we began rehearsals one day we were talking about what was coming up and he said you know I don't think this play would work if every night we meet for the first time that day on stage mm-hmm. I think we have to begin the play at least 45 minutes earlier I think we should share a dressing room well by then, we were both actors of a certain status sure. that, who expected to have their own private dressing room. Uh-huh. So this was a very unusual thought of his. But he was absolutely right. <laughs> Those two tramps have been together, been friends for over 50 years. There's a line in the play. Yeah. Oh, I don't know, over 50 years. And um, Ian was perfectly right because... The audience had to believe that this was a fifty-year-old relationship. So you shared a dressing. room. So we shared we shared a dressing room, and uh, with all that that means, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's it's a little it's a little bit like a marriage. Uh huh. That's fascinating, man. And it, it paid off. Uh, it it paid off so well that it meant by the time Ian said his first line, nothing to be done, and I responded, "I'm beginning to come around to that idea myself." Um, we had already had dialogue. Right. And and uh, whether if it was just recounting what we'd done during the day and we'd looked into one another's eyes and, you know, we'd gotten a, dressed. We, we'd got dressed <laughs> together. We put all this crap that we had to wear yeah, all yeah. the time because we were dirty old right, tramps right. and making ourselves look as horrible as possible. Um, so the play
0: was already underway. Oh, that's amazing. But it wasn't written by
1: Samuel Beckett.
0: All right, I know you got to go do <clears> Corden. <throat> so let's, uh, I got two more things I want to sure. just... Uh, First, the it seems like Walter Blunt and Blunt talk is is, 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 is in your mind. Is it? A, I, I imagine you're up against the typecast of of Picard to some degree. That there's an expectation of it. That you're in, embedded in the the global imagination as that guy. Yes, and sometimes just in a professional imagination, I persuade,
1: trying to persuade a director several years ago that he should have me in his film playing a very nice supporting role i've been campaigning mm-hmm. for this role and we had a great meeting it went so well and he said to me you, you, you know you're a terrific actor um I, I i really enjoyed meeting you but why would i want jean-luc picard in my movie <sighs> that's hard uh, yeah you know there's, and there's almost nothing you can do about that
0: right but now <clears throat> this is like very different from picard he's a very you know, earthly being a very sort of flawed and exciting character so that must it must be exciting to play it's so exciting and uh
1: perhaps most of all because i'm having to think a little differently the work the preparation is always the same it's consistent with with how i work to get the most out of a role Mm -hmm. but now there is that question you have to ask is and where is this funny (laughs) <laughs> so you've done all the other work, but now there's an extra layer, yeah. an extra element of performance or of behavior yeah. that you add on top of that that stops something from being just stupid or melodramatic right. or unbelievable and becomes
0: funny right and you're working with comedic actors oh well.
1: well in in blunt talk i yeah. mean
0: yeah all it's of surrounded. them far more yeah.
1: experienced than i am right in playing comedy it's great i mean we have richard lewis on the show sure. for instance i've watched a- him he's been in here <laughs> yeah. yeah
0: has he oh sure
1: playing a freudian analyst he, and he did anybody was born to play a freudian analyst
0: it's rich but it's lewis. interesting that for a guy <clears> that's built an entire career being the patient to 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 switch seats like that because I watched that first episode and part of the second one and you know he you know he really did a controlled performance oh, and he terrific. he removed some Lewisness <laughs> and 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 sort of like locked in yes you're you're that's a excellent way of put it
1: Lewisness was 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 taken out of it and I look into his eyes and I think I could trust this guy not that I wouldn't trust. Richard Lewis sure maybe I
0: should reconsider that statement right but trust him to listen to you that's a unique thing for Richard (laughs) (laughs) indeed so the other question I have before we wrap it up is what was your experience being knighted oh it was it was exciting were your
1: parents either alive no no Mm -hmm. they they I I was fortunate to be awarded an OBE in uh uh 2000 and in then 2010, um, the, the knighthood, to my astonishment, uh, came uh, came in a brown uh, plain envelope, except it said on the top of it, uh, 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 cabinet office, cabinet office. Mm-hmm. And it had been sitting in a plastic bag with a lot of other mail that had been in a closet of a motel where I was filming for about 10 days. Wow. And I had forgotten that I put this bag of mail in there, and very early one horrible cold November morning I I realized I've got a few minutes I should look through this and there was this letter cabinet office what the heck is this Mm -hmm. I opened it up and it said we are pleased to tell you that and I remember. You think s- they'd special deliver that, wouldn't you? Bro? <laughs> wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, some a kind ra- of their regular post. Somebody it was- in some fancy uniform. Right. Should have brought it to me. Um, no, it came by the mail. I don't think it was stamped. However, okay. I think letters from the cabinet was, office uh, to go uh, for free. Uh, yeah. And um, I remember staring at the brown wall of this motel room, in complete disbelief that this had happened. I couldn't take in the news that. You know, when I was when I was a young actor, I admired beyond words, Sir Alec Guinness, Sir John Gielgud, Sir Laurence Olivier, Sir Cedric Hardwick. These were all people that were heroes of mine. And suddenly I was been asked, do you want to join them? Yeah, You know,
0: that's amazing. Um,
1: and what I wanted to do was to rush on the set that morning because we were shooting the big dinner party scene in Macbeth. We were f- we filmed Macbeth yeah. as well and say, guys, you'll never believe what's happened. But you're not allowed to do that. You've Until got to, the ceremony? N- no, you mustn't speak about it at all. Ever? I I mean, there are stories that people who have kind of, you know, uh, spilt the telegrams beans. to spilt the beans have found that actually they didn't get it after all really
0: yeah yeah so did you then the ceremony with the queen was that it was the queen that i got my obe from
1: the prince of okay. wales yeah. i got the knighthood from her majesty and that was a, a, an especial a pleasure yeah. um and she was so impressive she gave out 100 awards that morning mm-hmm. she was on her feet i think she was 86 yeah she was on her feet for the entire hour she spoke a few sentences to each person receiving an award and was absolutely delightful. But it all kind of happened in a bit of a blur. The The only thing that I was obsessed with was that I wouldn't fall over because you have to walk backwards away from her. Uh-huh. After the, you know, oh, the you, knighting, with the, sword, with? the sword, the yeah. sword and the two shoulders, and then the ribbon around the neck and then standing up in a brief conversation. And then you have to take three yeah. paces away <laughs> from her while still facing her. And, and you're, on the top of some steps, uh-huh. you know. So my horror was that I would fall backwards down yeah, these.
0: A steps. year, you're a lifetime in theater, <clears throat> and you yeah. get yeah, yeah, three yeah. steps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mess up the stage management of it. That's beautiful. Now, do, when did your mother? Would she live long enough to see you work? Yes, she did.
1: Okay. She did. They 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 died only two years apart, and um, my mother, I know, was proud because she told me, mm-hmm. and she loved that I was having success and that. They both of them were pleased that I was actually able to have a, a, a quite comfortable life. I'll, I'll
0: say. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Thank you. Great talking to you. And you. Thanks very much, Mark. What an honor to, uh, to have that guy. Just a solid guy and thoughtful and, and amazing sort of that, the idea of... of being given the opportunity and taking it to find empathy and love in your heart for a, a, a sort of injury that, that lasted that long, his relationship with his father is just a what a phenomenal turn of events. Really, a really a great a great experience to talk to Sir Patrick Stewart.